Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey everybody, welcome to another new episode of Undying Light. I am your host, Pastor Alex, and we are coming at you once again with another new episode. Uh, as I kind of sit here and ponder this, and I've really made this up in my mind um, the last couple of hours that I've been recording, uh, we are going to do today chapters 6 and 7 in this book. We're going to look at the sacraments uh, in general, so we will do a quick par- uh, quick journey through these 40 or 50 pages or so. Uh, yeah, 55 pages. And then we will look at worship next week as a significant difference between Lutheran and Reformed. And then we will probably put a pause on the Tuesday shows for a while. And uh, this should take us uh, well into November. So right now I have up to the 25th recorded. So then November 1st and November 8th we'll have shows. And uh, we will probably take a pause after the eighth for the rest of the year. My goal is to finish my, my master's degree and to develop, uh, devote as much time as I possibly can to finishing that up. So we'll, we'll, we're going to cut her down to the one show a week for a while. And then if we need to, we'll, we'll draw it back and we'll continue on with two a week. I just don't know where we're going to go. So, so let's dig into uh, this topic and We've really kind of uh, hammered through a chunk of it already, if not most of it. And that's why I don't want to spend two separate episodes on these. Uh, we've had 10 or so episodes on baptism, and we've had 8 or 9 or 10 on, on the Lord's Supper. So we've done a considerable chunk uh, of shows looking at these topics. So we're just going to uh, kind of highlight a few aspects. We'll talk a little bit about the differences and uh, and the understandings of what's going on here. And then we will move into the Lord's Supper and talk, you know, very similar constructs there. Very high level. We won't get into too much of the nitty gritty, but we will talk on some of the major differences and hopes to help uh, you kind of 
break down that understanding, maybe that barrier that you have or answer any questions. And as always, if you have questions, send me a DM and we'll talk. And if you want to know more uh, between Wittenberg and Geneva, this book has been uh, what we've been going through these last few weeks because I find it to be one of the best demonstrations between the Lutheran and the Reformed camps. So baptism uh, is the basic right of the initiation into the Christian church. Christ himself was baptized. The book of Acts contains numerous accounts of baptisms. And the didactic, a first century Christian text, instructions were given for preparing and administering baptism. Throughout the Middle Ages, there is an extensive theological reflection on the issue of baptism and its practices, but no Orthodox theologians ever questioned the importance of the practice itself. On the basic point that baptism is the rite of Christian initiation, all who profess uh, profess Christianity are agreed, even though they might differ on the subjects of baptism, believers or believers and their children, and the mode, immersion, uh, or sprinkling, or effusion. So there's a, a little bit of difference between the Lutheran and the Reformed on the kind of perspective of baptism. Baptist or the Reformed, more or less, will say that it's an outward demonstration of an inward change. We don't see that anywhere in Scripture, and Lutherans don't believe in that, but we do see it being an outward expression in terms of the water washing over us. And so there is this similarity, but the way it's viewed beyond that can will differ. But interestingly enough, from the, the traditional Reformed camp, they would hold to an infant baptism. And they and the Lutherans agree on that. And then they both camps have rejected the Anabaptist, which forbid infants from being baptized. And so it's interesting that the traditional reform camp, the Lutherans and the Catholics all view infant baptism to be a, a common practice in the church. And I find it even interest, more interesting that if we, you know, as I've noted numerous times, during the baptismal series, the early church fathers pointing to the uh, the work of baptism by Christ through his people. And it's a, a, con- a conveying of, one's, of God's grace, and we should never withhold it to any person, especially infants. And so I always find it interesting when we uh, see you know, these modern movements that have rejected the babies from being baptized, saying that they can't demonstrate faith. They can't demonstrate that they know who Christ is well enough. And so they, they rely upon one's works to then be convincing enough to be baptized. And I find that to be troublesome and uh, unscriptural. So that's a kind of a discussion for later. So, Let's dig into this uh, a little bit here at a high level. Luther's view on baptism. He presumed that baptism is not merely uh, simply plain water. Instead, it is the water enclosed in God's command and connected with God's word. He expanded the definition in his large catechism. These two, the word and the water, may by no means be separated from each other. For where the word is separated from the water, the water is no different from the word that is made that the maid uses from cooking and could indeed be called a bathkeeper's baptism. But when the word is with it, according to God's ordinance, baptism is a sacrament. That is a gift from God. And it is called Christ's baptism. Baptism is a very different thing from all other water, not by virtue of the natural substance, but because there is something nobler 
added, for God himself stakes his honor, his power, and his might on it. Therefore, it is not simply a natural water, but a divine, heavenly, holy, blessed water. Praise it by any other terms you call you can, all by the virtue of the word, which is heavenly, holy word that is no that no one can sufficiently extol, for it contains and conveys all that is God's. So that's Luther on the Lord's Catechism and his uh, description of uh, baptism. He goes on to note that it is God who acts in baptism. He gives the one being baptized, and the one who is baptized simply receives. And I made this analogy a number of times on the show in prior, in the prior series that the person being baptized is merely receiving the free gift. It's kind of like you, when you're at Christmas with your family and your grandparents hand you a gift. You don't reject the gift without opening it. And, and in fact, you, you wouldn't even reject the gift entirely. You might exchange it for a different size or a different pattern or something if it's closed. But that's a technicality of, down the road. But the analogy remains the same, that you don't reject a gift that your grandparents give you. They give it to you freely, and you accept it. And you accept it without knowing what is in it. And that's the beauty of baptism. You accept baptism without truly knowing what it's doing to you until later in life. And then in that case, many people may not even truly understand it. I don't even think theologians today can truly comprehend the vastness of God's mercy and grace upon his people. And we can convey some of the basic tenets of, of eternal life and salvation in the resurrected body, but we don't know all the details. And so we don't quite and we can't quite fully comprehend all of the mystery that goes in into this. So uh, for the Lutheran, we, we baptize our, our infants. We uh, use that as an acknowledgement, if you would, into or an initiation, if you would, into the Christian body, into the Christian life. Uh, for instance, I had the privilege of baptizing my son uh, last October. And on Reformation Sunday, nonetheless, it was a beautiful service. And I, it was such a privilege and an honor to do to do that as a father, as a pastor. Uh, baptism is is truly a very special moment, and so to be able to do that and pour the water over my son and convey the gifts and mercies of of God to him, and then acknowledging that it is my responsibility as a pastor, as a father, to bring him up in those roots, just as I have done to my daughter, who's. Uh, four and a half years old and and goes to church every Sunday, goes to Bible school, uh, Sunday school and vacation Bible school and all that stuff and knows the Lord's Prayer and is going to start learning more in the catechism as she gets a little older. We have poured into her and we convey who Christ is to her and she knows and we will do the same with our son Isaiah. So baptism for the infants is crucial and uh, for the Lutheran to call yourself a Lutheran and not baptize your children, that's a pretty dangerous territory to be in because the Lutherans um, re- really are adamant about children being baptized because it is the gift of God to them. And it's, in my opinion, dangerous for the parent to withhold that gift until they find their children to be ready. Because if reality strikes, the children will probably never be ready if their parents are withholding that gift from them. So 
Let's uh, look and see what baptism does here. Luther's simple answer to this second question for children in his small catechism is that baptism brings about the forgiveness of sins, redeems from death and the devil, and gives eternal salvation to all who believe, as it is as is the words and promises of God declare. So Luther would go on to cite Acts 2, verses 38 through 40, First uh, Peter 3.21, Titus, I think it's Titus 3, uh, verses 4 through 5. I'm not entirely sure on that one but there's also text from colossians romans 6 and many other texts matthew 28 mark 16 uh, all of those texts correlate to what baptism does every time we see baptism it is always paired with the forgiveness of sin if we equate the forgiveness of sin to salvation the baptism brings about salvation if baptism brings about salvation then we would also come to the logical conclusion that baptism regenerates a person so therefore, baptism regenerates a person even before that person can understand what they're doing. And that's that to me is the greatest gift of God because it removes our selfish control over a situation and it solely stakes your identity on Christ. And it is the reliance upon God fulfilling what he is going to do to you. And that is give you salvation. Now, we would we've talked a, a number of times over the the text that is used. So if you are more if you're really interested, go back and read or listen for that matter. Listen to those episodes on the baptismal sh- series where we talk about the scripture, and then we looked at the early churches, early church fathers' perspective of those passages and other various quotes that they had surrounding baptism and you know, refresh your memory on that because we, we spent a considerable amount of time, I think three or four episodes just on that topic. And we, we worked through all of those scriptures, you know, especially like Romans six and acts two, Ephesians five, all of those where we see that it is, you know, what is being done in baptism. We are buried into a death like Christ. And then we are raised up into a resurrection like his, we have the forgiveness of sins. This is for us and our children. That is quoting Peter, uh, baptism now saves you. This is First Peter three twenty one, as he, as Peter's equating baptism now to what happened with Noah and his family with the floods, that the flood water saved his family, and so it's it's it, for me. Go back and listen to those episodes. I I just I can't convey that enough to fully familiarize yourself with those and and spend some time in, and my, my suggestion is, is look at them without the lens of your presuppositions. Uh, Listen to those episodes without your doctrinal teachings in your ear, like what you've been told and taught from the modern church. Just open your ears and listen to that show and, and hear the verses over and over and over again, and then go back and read those verses over and over and over again and, and see where you come. Maybe, maybe you don't agree with me and that's totally fine. You don't have to, but I'm saying, if you really truly want to understand the Lutheran perspective, you know, go back and listen to those episodes. We dig into it pretty deeply. So we've got the Reformed traditions here on baptism, and this is where we will see some significant differences. But interestingly enough, from the authentic traditional Reformed, we would not differ on who should get baptized. That actually doesn't come for a little bit later on in the argument, and we will see the Anabaptists now spearheading into the Baptist movement, which then would 
leave baptism to be a you know an outward sign of an inward transition or inward transformation which is not biblical you can't find that anywhere in scripture and they would rely upon the person's ability to proclaim it now here's the thing that really frustrates me with that i just i just got to get this off off my chest before we dig into the reformed tradition when they say that you must be able to profess your faith before you can be baptized how does that equate to people who can't speak uh, whether they're deaf or, 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 or maybe they have some sort of mental challenge that they can't articulate properly or they can't even write. So they can't, you know, signal why they believe, but they're, they've been given this promise over and over in life. But if they, you know, to, to refrain them from baptism simply because they can't make a, a proper proclamation as this, you know, particular view of doctrine would demand, you're denying them the baptism that they need. And I find that to be quite frustrating because for me as a, as a Lutheran pastor and a, you know, as a father of two children, I would never, ever withhold baptism from any person, no matter their, their, their state conditions or understanding or ability to pronounce anything. I've baptized teenagers, I've baptized infants, and if I have the privilege someday, I'd love to baptize some adults that we profess the, the the gospel to, I have no quarrels about baptizing people. I will not baptize or rebaptize people because we do not believe in two baptisms. As Paul indicates, we believe in one baptism, but I would not withhold baptism from any person just merely because they can or cannot make a proper proclamation. There is no, that, that, that puts the work into their hands and baptism is not their work. It is God's work. So that's my beef. And, and I know that in the more modern circles that has become prevalent, especially in the non-denominational churches. And it, it is frustrating. So baptism in the reformed view, the subject of baptism was contentious at the reformation and remains So even today, even though the personal stakes are not as great today, Protestants are divided on the subjects and mode of baptism. Is it for believers and their children or for believers only? Is it by sprinkling or immersion? On these matters, there's no different between there's no difference between Lutheran and Reform. Both traditions baptize infants prior to personal pro- profession of faith. Both traditions allow that sprinkling is legitimate, while seeing it as a matter of relative indifference. The difference between Lutheran and Reform positions thus lies in the meaning of baptism, not in the outward administration. So. We get to uh, Zwingli, and Zwingli uh, obviously likes to take on the furthest extreme of Luther. Um, he, he gets into this whole, you know, concept of abandoning infant baptism. And he moves to this. You must be able to make a profession of your faith publicly, which we know, uh, would then steam into the anti-Baptist movement, which become like the Mennonites and the Amish today. But also as a stem from that, not just the anti-Baptist, but, this would form into the Baptist movement as we know it today. This would be like the Charles Spurgeons and all those people, the John MacArthur's, John Piper's, all those guys. So they would essentially go to the extent of denying infant baptism to move to this proclamation of you must be able to profess your faith. When we get to John Calvin, John Calvin believes that infants should be baptized, but he's now starting to take more of the Zwingli position that baptism is an inward there's an outward side of that inward transformation and Calvin would then move to allow or signal more or less the 
um, position of one should make a pr- public proclamation if they would. Um, so it, it's kind of a joint connection, right, Bec- between Calvin and Zwingli and Calvin and Luther. Calvin tries to find the middle ground between the two extremes and yet always finds himself more or less siding with Zwingli than he does Luther on many things. So when we get into uh, the later confessions, especially the Baptist confessions, we'll see that the baptismal uh, baptism for infants becomes uh, a, more of a controversial subject. Uh, the concept of baptism for the forgiveness of sins becomes controversial and they have they will essentially go to the extent to say that baptism is just a mark of obedience upon which one takes when they make a proclamation of faith. It has no conveying of grace. It does not do anything. They in some circles I have heard people say it does it does bring about the acknowledgement that your sins are forgiven, but it doesn't actually do that. And and I've heard that used a few times. And, and I find that to be troubling, too, because you're, you're saying it's like, OK, well, it kind of does, but it doesn't really do it. It just it, it makes you think that it does, but it, there's no promise in it. And, and I think that's a huge difference between the Lutheran and the Reformed camps on baptism is the, the Lutherans turn and rest in the promise of Christ in baptism, that it does the things that Scripture tells us that it does. Whereas the, the reform try to find logical explanations and they try to say, OK, well, maybe it maybe it does. But, uh, you know, it, it may not, you know, and we just can't really be for sure. And so if, if we're not for sure, then we, we, we better make sure our fruit is in check and that we actually do authentically believe in et cetera, et cetera. I can rant and rant and rant on this as all I want, but I'm not going to. We'll conclude it out with this. A high view of baptism, especially infant baptism, marks the confessional traditions of Lutherans and the Reformed and many other strands of the Protestant church life, particularly the Baptists who repudiate the practice and the evangelicals who are often at best indifferent for it. For those at a high view of God's grace, there is no dramatic representation of, the in, of, of that in the infant baptism. This helpless child is brought to the front, or is brought to the font, and the minister administers the right and the context for the proclamation of what God has done. It is a beautiful analogy in the way God works, for it denies the idea that baptism is any sense, anything that we do in response to God, or to publish any uh, publish abroad that we have professed faith. It is rather a sign that the child is a member of the visible covenant community with all the privileges and regular exposure to the word and to the fellowship of the church, in addition to the imperatives it brings for the child to grasp Christ by faith as he is offered. For the Reformed, infant baptism also sets the stage for a specific view of Christ's discipleship. First, that it connects the ritual life of the church today, that with the people of God, back through the centuries to Abraham and to the covenant of circumcision. It is thus a beautiful redemptive historical act, full of rich theological meaning and setting the child onto an ongoing history of God's dealing with the covenant people. The second aspect of this is that it sets Christian discipleship from birth within the covenant context. Some Reformed believers may well have a testimony of, con- of conversion as a crisis experience or as least as a dramatic process that, to- that turned their lives around at some point, but not all will. To be set within a covenant context means to understand discipleship as something connected or t- uh, to the ordinary means of God's grace and the routine work of the church, hearing the word and hearing the word read and preached, partaking in the sacraments, being p- 
uh, prayed for and prayed with the family and the congregation and being catechized. In short, it, it means growing as a Christian within the household of faith into, uh, <clears throat> into which one is received as an infant. This is also not exciting or dramatic, but the Reformed believe that it is the way God has gloriously chosen to build the church and the kingdom. Infant baptism is thus part a vital part of both the theology and theological practice of the church for one for which we should give thanks to our gracious God, which, okay. So before we get into the Lord's supper, I, I really kind of want to, I really want, uh, I really want to make this statement because it, it, it's, it, it can be frustrating. How in the world has the modern evangelical church or the modern Baptist movement, and I'm just using Baptist as kind of a general term, uh, how can these individuals move to the extent to say that infant baptism is no longer efficacious for the church to practice? It is no longer good for the church to practice. In fact, they, they go to such an extent that the church should no longer practice baptism because it, you know, it in, they're not making that outward proclamation, right? The, the child can't profess faith and that, that they're, that's what they're hinging on when that hasn't been a practice uh, ever in the church. The church has always practiced infant baptism from, from acts chapter two and on when Peter makes that statement, this promises for you, the crowd of men who are there and for your children who are far off for the children who didn't come. That includes infants, toddlers, young children, teenagers, all of that, that promise is given to them. And so I find it interesting how we as a church have tried to move away from these promises because they, they don't fit our, our theological perspective or our theological presupposition. And I used to be one of those people in the reform camp that rejected infant baptism. And for me, when I started learning about the Lutheran faith and reading the early church fathers, it was one of the easiest things I picked up and was able to discard out of my theological backpack and be able to embrace that all children should be baptized. So now let's get into the Lord's Supper as we move into chapter 7. Uh, along with the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist, as we've talked about in the Lord's Supper series, uh, the Reformed and Lutherans uh, maintain that it is one of two sacra uh, sacraments. Lutherans will often call it the sacrament to the altar. Uh, the Reformed will look at it and call it the Lord's Supper. The Catholic Church, on the other hand, uses Eucharist as a general term. Anywho, so this is a interesting topic. Um, there is some significant difference here, but not necessarily in the manner to which it's done. Now, interestingly enough, I had a conversation with a Baptist preacher and he, him and I were talking about communion because I guess a couple or by the time this airs a couple Sundays ago would have been uh, world communion day. And this is something that the Methodist, I guess, embrace. And I've never heard of it myself personally, neither has this Baptist preacher. And he was going on, he goes, well, we just kind of do it as a you know, as a remembrance. And I said, Oh yeah, well, okay. You know, I didn't want to get into a debate with him. And I said, you know, but to hear that really just brings around more understanding of what the Lord's supper does, because what it's showing is, is there is, there is differences between the Lutherans and the reformed and Lutherans and the Baptists and Lutherans and the evangelicals and Lutherans and basically everybody else, because Lutherans view the sacrament of the altar in a very specific manner and the rest of the Protestant movement really doesn't. And so we, again, 
talked uh, extensively on prior episodes of the Lord's Supper, so we're not going to get too deep into it, but we will talk about some of the significant differences here. Uh, let's start with what's, what is the Lord's Supper. As the Lutheran perspective is this. It is the true body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ under the bread and wine instituted by Christ himself for us Christians to eat and drink. Luther had written this in his small catechism as well as a very extensive uh, description in his large catechism. Uh, and you can go and read those free online if you choose to. But uh, we went through most of those lines, if not all of them, in the uh, series on the sacraments. And we made sure we, we spent a considerable amount of time unpacking the Lutheran perspective. But it always comes back to this notion of, of two things, what it is and what it does. Uh, what it is is the the real body and blood of Jesus Christ. What it does is it conveys the forgiveness of sins. This is a quoting of Matthew 26, verses 26 through 29, where Jesus says, Take and eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me for the forgiveness of sin. Take and drink. This is my blood shed for you. Do this for the forgiveness or do this in remembrance of me for the forgiveness of sins. Those are uh, the perspective of the Lutheran faith right there, wrapped up into those three verses on the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Now we talked on some other passages, there's not a ton in the New Testament. There is Matthew 26, and then there's the passage from, I think it's Luke 21. And then uh, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. And really, uh, there's one minor passage in Luke or in Acts chapter 2. And really, from the, beyond that, there's not a whole lot of other passages. And we, we did it. So we tried to uh, correlate the uh, Passover meal into you know, into this, <clears throat> excuse me. And we talked about, uh, Jesus being the fulfillment of that and how this is now, you know, the new meal that Christians partake in. And so we did an episode on that. And then we went through the early church fathers and, and looked at their quotes. And, and I even made it interesting because some of those quotes would then can be used as building blocks, if you would, for the Roman Catholic position. Uh, and as we did with the baptism series, we had an episode on, the major views. And we talked about how each of the views represent the, the, the sacraments. And there's a significant difference because the, the Catholics will think that upon the blessing, the bread and body or the bread and wine transformed the body and blood of Christ. It transforms it's transubstantiation. The Lutherans don't view that Lutherans view that Jesus is just present bodily in the bread and wine. Once the words of institution are paired to the bread and wine, how that happens, we can't convey it because Scripture doesn't tell us, and we are not—we're not about to be chasing some logical fallacy down the rabbit hole. We are simply going to say, "Well, Jesus says this. He's holding up bread and wine. He's making a representation. This is his last will and testament, and so what Jesus says here must go. And if Jesus says he's present, then he must be present." And and then I argued as well along with the fact that. For the Reformed who do not believe that Jesus is present, even spiritually, guess what? Jesus is present if he's there spiritually. Um, or it's just merely a, a means of uh, remembrance and it has no significant value or it doesn't convey any grace. Then uh, how would we argue that Jesus could do whatever he wants with his body, especially after the resurrection? When he appears in front of his disciples behind locked doors, the doors were locked. There's walls surrounding. It's not like he jumped through a window or came through the roof. He appeared. He did what he wanted to do with his body. He defies the laws of physics because he exists outside of those laws of physics. He is God in the flesh. So 
That being that, the Lutheran perspective is Christ is present in and under and with the uh, bread and wine and how he does so. We don't take a, a, a an attempt to explain because we'll end up we'll end up doing more damage than than good. So that is the the perspective of the Lutherans. The Reformed have a couple different views. Uh, the Zwingli would be much more of a spiritual representation or merely a remembrance, uh, kind of a ceremony type, but it has no significant value. Some other Reformed would view it as Christ is spiritually present and it conveys grace and it conveys the forgiveness of sins. So there's some similarities between the Lutheran and the Reformed in those categories. But out of the Zwingli uh, line, which would then again cascade into the Amish and the Mennonites and various other forms of evangelical modern Baptist preaching. Uh, it is just merely a ceremony and has no grace being conveyed and Christ isn't present at all. So uh, that's the reformed in a nutshell. Uh, again, there's there's so much more detail and I and I hate to cut the show short um, on that because, there is such profound theology between both uh, between both camps, and I I would love to maybe do something a little bit later on where we focus just solely on the reformed aspects of these, but I'm not quite certain I'm going to have that opportunity to do so. And I think I've hammered out enough from the Lutheran perspective. And if you're a reformed listening to the show, if you're from the reformed perspective then you you would be more familiar with your position and you're learning the Lutheran position for the first time. And if you're Lutheran and you, you know, as I know some of you are, uh, and you come from a Calvinistic background such as I do, you are familiar with that. And so I hope that you can just hear this and be reminded of the grace and mercies of Jesus Christ being conveyed to us through the sacraments. Um, and if you're curious, again, on the Lutheran perspective, read Luther's large catechism on the Lord's Supper and his small catechism. And uh, that is conveyed into the rest of the Book of Concord and the confessions and the formula and all that. If you're looking at the Reformed, then you would have to go and read like the Heidelberg Catechism, or the Westminster Catechism or the Baptist Catechisms. And you would have to you know, fill into whatever your denominational background is and either read Calvin or read Zwingli and get their perspective. We did a whole episode on the difference between Luther and Zwingli. So you can go back and listen to that. And this is kind of one of those shows where I'm like touching base on the high levels, but then pointing you back to what I've already done more extensively on. So uh, please, by all means go back and listen to those shows and I hope you will enjoy them as uh, they have been, you know, helpful to me next week. We're going to take on uh, Christian worship and we are going to look at, the perspective of how Christians worship from the Reformed perspective and the Lutheran perspective. So we'll dig into a little bit of the divine service aspects of the Lutheran faith and why we have liturgies and, and how the Reformed take on their services. We might even talk a little bit about uh, the cross and pictures in that as well. So that might be something we deal with a little bit more uh, next week. But then after that, we're going to, we're going to kind of go quiet on Tuesdays for a while. And, uh, we are going to uh, give me some ep- extra time to finish my master's and then we might bring it back or we'll see where we stand and how people you know enjoy it. So give you some time to catch up if you would. Guys, thanks for tuning in. I hope you all have a great week. We are digging into the nitty gritty of Matthew by the time this show will air. Uh, and I hope you guys are enjoying that as well. Until Friday, have a great week. God bless. We'll see you later.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.